One of the roles of the church that I see is to address questions that the culture is asking from a biblical and gospel perspective. You follow that? One of the, one of the roles of the church, if it's faithful to its community and to its culture, is to answer the questions that the culture is asking from a biblical and gospel-centered perspective. And so that is the, the motivator for why we're here today and for the next three weeks, or the, the motivator for the subject matter of the sermons for the next few weeks. Um, because uh, a prevailing question is this idea of homosexuality and, and gay marriage and, and all of those things that, that the culture is really pressing in on us. And, and uh, there's a guy named John Tyson, I've, I've mentioned it before, who's a pastor in New York City and kind of a uh, a thinker when it comes to, to church and culture. And about a year ago, I sat on a conference he was doing, and, and he said that the, the number one question that the church is going to have to answer to culture, what I just talked about, is this, this idea of, of homosexuality and what does Scripture really say about it. And, and so this, this particular series for us at North Church for the next three weeks, it's really important for two reasons. One is because we are missionaries into our culture, and, and two, there is so much misinformation coming from both sides and so much hatred and, and vitriol coming from both sides that, that it's, it's counterproductive to everything that's going on. And so, so the, the church that God has called me to lead, I want us to be informed as to what Scripture says and what Scripture is calling us to. All right? It's, it's really important for us at, at the brink of this to know why we're, why we're here and, and why we're moving forward to this. And before we get into the heart of the message, I, I want to offer this disclaimer and be sure that we're not just pointing fingers at people saying, shame on you. But instead, I, I want to bathe the next three weeks in this idea that comes from a, a tweet I saw from uh, a pastor this week. It says, when tempted to harshly judge others, remember that all of us violate our own convictions with embarrassing regularity. I want that to, to bathe everything that, we're, that it's going to be said and everything that's going to be thought by you in the next three weeks. And I love, it's not just, I love the words that, that Darren chooses there, violate our convictions. And, and think about the violence of that word, violate. We violate our convictions with embarrassing regularity. I'm getting ready to teach a series on sexual sin. I violate my convictions with embarrassing regularity. I read this quote like on Monday this week, and I was wrestling with the subject matter this week. Not, with full knowledge that I'm embarrassed if, if everyone in the world knew my own sexual sin all the time, how embarrassed I would be. Let's turn that to you. How embarrassed would you be if everybody in this room right now knew your sexual sin of the last 48 hours? When tempted to harshly judge others, remember. That's why... I, the Psalm 51 stuff that we did this morning, when I ask you to stand, what's troubling your heart? And, and what do you need to repent of and confess before God? This 
is it. It's, there's a little silly thing you might have learned when you were a kid. When you're pointing a finger at someone, remember there are three fingers pointing right back at you. But Scripture is filled with that truth. And I hope as we engage this conversation this morning, and then I hope as we engage this conversation that the culture is asking that this is the thing that permeates our brains. The embarrassment of the violation of our own convictions that we have in our own lives. And I don't say that to back down from any stands that Scripture takes. I say that really to say that this message and the whole message of, of Scripture is not about ethics. It's not about morality. It's not about what you do or what you don't do in any context. I, I've said this a few times in the last few weeks. This message is not about homosexuality. It's about how we relate to a holy and perfect God and what he has done to save us from our own sin. The context of that message is sexual sin. But the heart of the message is we are wretched and broken people living sinful lives and God sent his son Jesus to save us from those sins, to give us the power to transform who we are. This series is not about sexual ethics. It's about a God who loves you and provides a means for you to know him. As such, I want to use this current debate to bring to the forefront the grand meta-narrative of God, that we are sinners and he has saved us from our sin. I want to also start this out by saying that there's a large section of the gay community that finds themselves marginalized and abandoned by the church. And if Christ were here, I believe he would seek after those who are marginalized and have been abandoned by the church. When we see him in his Gospels, that's, that's where he's spending his time, with the marginalized and with the, those abandoned by the church. And so I say that as a motivator for us. If you are here and a Christian this morning, there are marginalized people and abandoned people who, who whether it's true or not, they experience in their spirits abandonment by the church. And I want to stand up and scream, sin, wrong, stop it. There are probably people who will listen to this, maybe this morning that are in this room, and I know, I've talked to seven of them, that are, are, will listen to this on the podcast. There are people that, that will listen to this and that we know that wrestle with same-sex attraction. What do we do with that? Do we deny ourselves? Do they deny themselves? Or, and we'll talk about that at, at the end today and then as we go, this idea of, of self-denial and, and who I am and, and all those things and all those thoughts. And we'll, we'll talk about that. But the heart of the matter is, is the gospel has something to say to everyone who wrestles with stuff that's inside of them that they don't know what to do with. You know people like that, and maybe you are like that. So for the next three weeks, this is our, our topic of conversation, and I want to start in a good place this morning, which is the beginning. If you have your Bible, open it to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 1, God is creating the earth. Genesis 2, 
is us. He's creating man. So starting in verse 20 of Genesis chapter 2, we're going to the beginning to really kind of understand and try to understand what's happening here. Before we do that, let's, I want to pray if I could. We'll probably be doing a lot of praying in the next three weeks. God, I I come before you and and I thank you for this morning and this opportunity for us to engage your word in the context of these questions that the culture is asking. Lord, I, I pray that you would not make us preoccupied with sexuality, Father, but instead be preoccupied with your gospel and your purpose and your design. God, guide us this morning. Guide me this morning as I communicate. Guide those here this morning and those that will hear this later. Guide each of us to hear what you have to say to us. Cause us to to wrestle with you and with your scripture and with culture, God. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his perfect name. So Genesis 2.20, going to the beginning of the creation of man. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to the beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper for him. We've talked about that word in recent days. Helper is the, the Hebrew word azer, which is mostly used, almost exclusively used for God in the Psalms, when David or, the, or whatever, whoever's writing the psalm cries out, God, I need help. You are my help in a time of trouble. That's this word here. So God has given to the man, the woman, as his help, as God is to us. Don't miss that as we talk about this, this creation of marriage and of Adam and Eve. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, your, your Bible, your version there might have this in different typeset there or in a different paragraph set. This is a, a poem that flowed from the man when he saw his wife. Don't miss that. This is poetry that flowed from the man when he met the one who God created for him as his helper. This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman for she, because she was taken out of man. When man lays hold of the vision of his wife, poetry comes out. Flesh of my flesh. Therefore, verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. That that phrase there is probably better translated as united. United. Not as in two hands coming together, but as two hands coming together and flesh created around that. It's, it's an inseparable uniting, this holding fast. 
It's the same concept when you come to Christ. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit. You become one with the Holy Spirit. You are one flesh. This is what this is talking about. And again, God creating marriage here. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. I want to bring out, remind us of, of some phrases here. First, there was not found the helper for man, and so God created one for him. God created this. And it's not something where you, you know, you walk in and you meet someone who, who you kind of like and you kind of are attracted to and, and, and you begin to kind of talk to each other and you have got some things in common. This is not. God saw man, saw his needs, created woman to fill those needs. And they are united as one flesh. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. That's another phrase. Let that wrestle in your brain. And then he was united and he held fast to his wife. And then there was one flesh. They became one flesh. I've experienced things in my life since my marriage. And whenever I experience something wonderful or profound and my wife is not there, it's not nearly as wonderful or profound because we're one flesh. I think a big part of, of the trouble in my spirit in the midst of this is because my wife isn't here today. We're one flesh. This is what God ordained and created marriage to be. And again, these words that I'm speaking can tend to marginalize and abandon a, a, a huge community that has been abandoned and marginalized by the church. But, but I, I want you to, to, I want to beg of you to stay with me. Wait till we get to the end of this, this morning. And then the last part, the last phrase to, to bring us is that they were both naked and they were not ashamed. God created you and created me to be naked and not ashamed. You can see everything about me in every facet physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. There is a craving in my heart to be known in that way. There's a craving in your heart to be known in that way. Naked and not ashamed. But we've created a culture, in a church especially, that is clothed and ashamed. There, there's few of you that get to know all of who I am. That's not true. There's none of you who get to know all of who I am. Not even my wife. We are clothed and ashamed. But this is who we are and who we are created to be. You guys know the Jason Bourne story? The Bourne trilogy, the Bourne identity, and now it's like into like its fourth or fifth one, I don't know. Um, the opening scene, the, the, the heart of that movie is Matt Damon as Jason Bourne, or like three different guys, whatever he is. He's hit his head, he's got amnesia, and he doesn't understand who he is, and so he goes about his life, and when he encounters a predicament, 
part of his, he's been trained to be like this, this assassin spy, really bad dude, right? And he doesn't know that lying in his boat with amnesia. But as he encounters predicaments in his, in his life, like, holy cow, I can, I know this like really wicked, like karate stuff. I can kill people with my hands and I know how to shoot guns, all of which an hour before he didn't know who he was. And this, that idea that, that's, that shows up in the Bourne movies of him engaging predicaments and those predicaments bringing out something that is innate within him, that has been dormant within him, that's exactly what I intend and God intends for Genesis 2 to do. There's something innate and born within you that's probably maybe dormant within you that God wants to awaken. That you were the predicaments in this world rise up. It, it remains dormant until you're faced with this predicament. And the, the predicament is this. Not just this marriage that you were born to, to be naked and unashamed before your wife or your husband. But you were born to be naked and unashamed, known and fully known and fully comfortable with that being known before a holy God. And predicaments that happen in this world are, are designed to awaken the dormancy of those notions. That God passionately desires to awaken in you this craving to be naked and unashamed before him. But that naked and unashamed that Adam and Eve sense before each other and before God doesn't last long because in the next verse, the first verse of chapter 3, we see the serpent on the scene. Turn that page to Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Verse 4 is the big lie that creation and sin and the fall turn on. Again, the serpent has no power here other than to lie to the woman. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Lie. That Satan tells the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes that the tree was to be desired. See that word? The tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. I don't ever want to get past this verse. I know it's not the topic of here, but due to standing right next to her, letting Satan lie to her. Men, don't be punks. Rise up, protect your wives. She took some of the fruit and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. 
I want to keep going. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord because of sin in their lives. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he said to them, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. I want to talk about sin this morning. I want to talk about our sin this morning. Talk about the root of sin. Make four statements about it. First, the root of sin is being convinced that God is holding out on us. The root of sin is us being convinced that God is holding out on us. That's what happened in the garden, right? The serpent comes and says, God doesn't want you to eat of that tree because he doesn't want you to be as smart as him. He wants to keep this power over you. He wants to keep this authority over you. God is holding out on you. He, does, he wants to keep joy and happiness and pleasure from you. The heart of sin is us believing that. And again, Satan can only tell lies. He can't make you do anything. Eve ultimately believes that God doesn't have her best interest in mind. That God's interests are to keep her below him, to keep his thumb on her. It's the root of sin. Sin is gratifying desires in ways outside of their intended purpose. There's fruit everywhere in the garden. Everywhere. There's one tree she can't eat of, but there's fruit everywhere. She wants the one she can't. God has provided let me, let me say this again. Let me say this really clearly. I don't want to be misunderstood here. God has provided appropriate ways for every one of your desires. God has provided appropriate ways for every one of your desires to be fulfilled. Every one of them. Any confusion about that? God has provided ways for every one of your desires to be filled. And sin is gratifying desires that are natural, perfect, wonderful desires outside of ways that God has, has provided for them. Does that make sense? There's fruit everywhere. There's fruit everywhere. God has provided for you. Third thing, sin is elevating the created over the creator. At the heart of the matter, Eve wanted that fruit more than she wanted God. The heart of the very first sin, Eve wanted fruit more than she wanted God. When we are encountered with temptation... That's the question that we're asking ourselves. Do you want this sin more than you want God? Most of the time our answer is, yes, I want this sin more than I want God. Eve's answer to that question was, yes, I want this sin more than I want God. 
at the heart of sin, it's elevating the created over the creator. The fruit was ultimate. God was not. The last thing, sin is an insurmountable hurdle that keeps us from our full purpose. Sin is an insurmountable hurdle in us that keeps us from our full purpose. Our full purpose is to be naked and unashamed before God, enjoying created, creative relationship with him. Sin leaves us as it left Adam and Eve clothed and hiding and ashamed. But God has labored and suffered to correct that. Matt Chandler has this quote in a message. The cosmos itself was fractured. The human soul was fractured. And every aspect of God's good, right, and beautiful creation was fractured. I'm going to walk through this slowly. Every aspect of God's good, right, and beautiful creation was fractured. So now, instead of being drawn to the creator, we are drawn to creation. And we will put the weight of our joy on creation, which can't bear it. I love that phrase. We put the weight of joy on creation, which can't bear it. What he's saying is, sin causes us to put the responsibility to make us happy and to give us fulfillment, to put it on the creation and not God. My happiness is tied to my wife. If my wife loves me well, I'll be happy. That's me putting my joy and my purpose on her, something that she was not designed to hold up. This week I was teaching my son how to tackle. His first football game is this afternoon. I'm trying to teach him how to tackle. He runs into people really hard, but then he doesn't do anything. He just bumps into them. You got to get low, Coop. You got you to drive your shoulder. You got to wrap it up. You got to pull it in. So I try to teach him how to tackle. And I didn't want him doing it to his sister because that's, you know, they're going to blood and fight and it's not going to be pretty. So come tackle me. All right? And he comes and he does it perfect. He gets like, he gets low and, and, and he drives his shoulder and he wraps up the bottom of my legs and it's, it's just perfect. But, you know, I want to teach him. I'm never, I'm never going to let him win something just to let him win. That's just not who I am. You're going to earn this. All right? And so I'm trying to not let him tackle me. And I'm just, just really too big. Right? I've never said that before. I've never said that before. But for Cooper to tackle me, I'm just, just really too big. He can't, he can't do it. He can't tackle me because I'm too big. And this is what's happening here in this quote. We put the weight of our joy on creation, which can't do it. It can't handle it. Your joy is not tied to creation. It can't provide for you. It's going to provide a taste, a, a glimpse a, a bit of it, but you're going to wind up broken and in tears and completely unfulfilled. And this is the heart of this question of, of our sexuality. 
going to wind up broken and unfulfilled. Let me bring this into context for us a little bit. How this works itself out. Food. Food is really good. It's really good. Like, one of the, one of the joys of, of being married to Jen is every time she bakes one of you cookies, I'm eating one that's like 30 seconds old. And it's warm and it's fresh and like falls apart. Right? It's, it tastes so good. Think of something in your life, foods. Think of like the best meal you've ever had. Do you know that God created tastes? Do you know that? The th- what you experience on your taste buds from the food that you put in your mouth was created by God? Do you know that? Do you ever, do you ever think, do you ever have that thought before? But, but food, when it becomes the ultimate, what happens? Gluttony happens. Or abuse happens. Or you just wind up Ugh, and, and you ever, what if I ate 20 chocolate chip cookies? What am I, what's going to happen to me? I'm going to be vomiting all over the place. But, but I can, I mean, this is, this is silly. We're talking about a chocolate chip cookie here. But I can, I can trace a chocolate chip cookie back to a holy God. God, you have given great pleasure. Thank you for this pleasure. That's an appropriate response to the creation An inappropriate response to the creation is, I gotta have chocolate chip cookies all the time. And I hope you can see that. What about relationships? Relationships are really good. I love my wife. I love you. A lot of you guys have told me this week, you're gonna come to Cooper's game this afternoon. You know why? Because we have relationship with each other. We wanna be together. Right? It's beautiful. God created it on purpose to give us joy. But the fracture that's happened brings envy and strife and jealousy and rape and all these different hardships and and lying. The brokenness of this world has brought that to us so that one what was once designed for good now can bring evil and hardship and strife into a life. And you bring that to relationships. You bring that to your most important relationships. I bring that to my wife. Jealousy, envy, lying, I bring those things. You bring those things to our relationships and they get broken. And especially when we call them the ultimate. The created is not the ultimate. The creator is. But when I engage my wife, when I engage relationship with you, and I say, thank you, God, for this, for this joy you've given to my heart, for this fulfillment of purpose that you've given to me, we are drawn to our creator. It's so massively important. And the last thing, the context of the message this morning is sex. Sex is good. 
Sex is fun. Sex is designed to to keep our species alive. It's vital and it's fun. But when it becomes the ultimate, rape, incest, jealousy, strife, disease, abortion, all of these are the result of a perverted understanding of the created. Sex was created by God to give us joy and purpose. This is a really big deal here. There, I, I want to do a, just a, a quick little Greek word study. There are, there are two words that Scripture uses in the New Testament for homosexuality. One of them is used twice. The other one is used, I believe it's 20, 24 times, yeah. It's the Greek word porneia. You might recognize porn in there. It's where we get pornography from. And it's really a catch-all word for sexual sin, for, for sex outside of the context in which God has provided it. Among the definitions of porneia, bestiality, incest, homosexuality, fornication, which really is just sex before marriage, and adultery. Those are the, when you commit porneia, when you have sex with animals, bestiality, you've committed porneia. When you have sex with a close family member, you've committed incest, which is porneia. When you have sex with someone of your own sex, you've committed homosexuality, which is porneia. When you have sex with someone before you're married, you've committed porneia. When you commit adultery, sex with someone that's not your spouse, you've committed porneia. And Jesus says adultery is more than just the physical act. It's the thought. It's lusting. Okay? So what I mean to say here is porneia is a big word. Okay? And this is the word that God uses to call adultery, incest, bestiality, homosexuality, fornication. So when we stand up and point our fingers, understand who you are. Please understand who you are. And those that you're pushing into the margins, you should be included in that group. God does, and 24 times in scripture, he uses this word porneia. God does not discriminate between adultery and homosexuality. It is the same, not just, we all hear this idea that sin is sin and all separates us from God. Yeah, that's true. But it's not just the same sin, it is the same named sin sin. If you go and you have sex with someone of your same sex, or if you go and have sex with someone who is not your spouse, or if you go and have sex before you get married, you've committed porneia. Do we see that? Do we act like that? Do we think like that? Do we have conversations on Facebook like that? Do we eat chicken like that? Do we? 
We all are here. And all this message is designed to do is, is one thing. Send us to our face before a holy God that we need and beg of mercy from him. That's the whole point. That's the whole point of every conversation. Every conversation. Fall on your face before a holy God saying, have mercy on me. I live in a broken world among broken people and I'm broken. And I put the weight of my joy on creation, not on you. Creation can't bear it, but God can. The beauty of this thing, of of sin and Jesus, is that it draws us to that, to the place where Jesus has called us, and it brings us to a place of repentance. And I've talked for a long time about repentance. Repentance is the Greek word metanoeo, and it's the changing, an essential essence change of the way that we think. I've quoted a guy named A.W. Pink that says, you are no more capable of repenting than you are of creating a new world. God has to provide the means to repent. And then we merely stand and walk in what God has given to us. So we are desperate to be able to do this thing called repentance. And whether you are gay or straight, we are desperate for this need to repent, to be changed, and not born in us this ability to change. It's not born in us this ability to transform. This God-granted, merciful, grace-filled ability to respond. We're all desperate for it, gay or straight, Christian and non-Christian. We're all desperate to need this idea of repentance, this essential change of the way that we think. And that is where we are led this morning. That is where this conversation about homosexuality has to lead us. Repentance. God, I am broken. Please change me because I want to cast my cares, my joy, the responsibility for my happiness on you and not on the creation. Let's pray and respond to God. God, I thank you so much for Jesus. I thank you so much for this morning. Lord, I pray that you would continue to shape our hearts. God, I pray that you would do what's necessary in us and through us so that we might engage this culture with the questions that it's asking with a beautiful and biblical response. We might do so with charity and with love and with steadfastness and fully aware of our need for you. God, you have used this conversation to make us aware of our desperate need for you. Guide us now as we respond to the knowledge that we are desperate for you. It's in Christ's perfect name.